Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Nelson Yuan. Nelson is a Senior Vice President at PIMCO. He's previously been with Morgan Stanley uh, and also Carlisle Group. Uh, He graduated from Columbia University in New York and as well as completed an MBA at uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, Nelson's been at PIMCO for eight years, where he's a senior vice president in the Alternative Strategist Group. We're talking to him about an opportunistic credit strategy that allows investors to enjoy equity-like returns, but with debt-like risk or volatility. The underlying four key areas that they invest into in this space are residential mortgage-backed securities, uh, commercial real estate debt, Uh, corporate credit or debt to companies, as well as specialty lending, which is a bucket that includes things like aircraft financing and uh, other specialty lending like uh, receivables financing. I hope you enjoy this. I really did. I think it's a unique opportunity. This is a US-centric opportunity that uh, we're currently, for some clients, hedging back to the Australian dollar. Uh, Please remember as always, that this isn't an endorsement or designed to be specific advice. We encourage people to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek advice uh, before making any investment. Please remember to send me your feedback, like the podcast and share it. I hope you enjoy. Nelson, welcome to Inside the Road. Thank you for having me here. Excited to be here. Nelson, perhaps you could kick us off by giving us a little bit uh, of your background. Sure. Uh, So I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, Uh, went to college in New York City at Columbia University, Uh, was actually an engineer in college, uh, but because of the gravitational pull, if you will, of finance in New York City, uh, I went straight into finance right out of undergrad, uh, working for Morgan Stanley uh, in their leverage finance group. Spent a few years there and then decided to move over to the Carlyle Group to invest in uh, many of the same leverage finance and alternative credit type investments that we were making uh, at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Then uh, a couple years after that, GFC happened uh, and ultimately I decided that I wanted to go back to business school. So I went to Harvard Business School um, and graduated in 2011. And then since that time, I've been at PIMCO. uh, So now almost eight years at PIMCO. First six years in our Newport Beach office uh, headquarters, and then the last two years based in Hong Kong. Okay, so uh, Harvard does uh, pretty impressive with an MBA as well. Uh, what was that like? Sure, um, the, the the business school was great, and, and Harvard as a as a as an institution obviously is extremely um, impressive. Uh, I think that the the best part of it, I think, really was the access to the professors and also the the caliber of the students that I was going to classes with, and particularly given that it was during the GFC. There was a lot of just interesting conversations and things that we were talking about that were very just current, um, that the researchers uh, and the the professors were kind of working on at that time. And so there was a lot of just current discussions happening about what caused us to get to the crisis and then ultimately kind of how we are trying to get out of it and whether or not that's going to be successful or not. Okay. And now you're at PIMCO. Perhaps you can give our listeners a bit of a taste to... uh, PIMCO and who they are and what it does. Sure. So PIMCO, as an organization, uh, we've been around since the 1970s. So we've been managing money for investors for about 45 years. Our primary focus is on fixed income and credit assets. Uh, And today we manage approximately $1.8 trillion globally. Our investors will be a wide range of different clients, uh, from 
big uh, central banks to sovereign wealth funds, to pension plans, foundations and endowments, insurance companies, and also retail investors as well. Um, our primary focus is really on being an active fixed income manager and credit manager. And so we have a full spectrum of different funds and different strategies and different areas that we focus on. I think the one key thing though that drives us is really a, a focus on putting the clients first. Um, and that comes in the form of both new product construction in terms of things that we think will achieve the different objectives that investors have and help them meet some of the challenges that they're seeing, but also in terms of always trying to put the clients first in terms of how we manage the portfolio. So trying to be more conservative and, and achieve the objectives that we've stated for our investors. So very much a, a client-centric type of organization. Now, that would put PIMCO as pretty much the largest in the space by global footprint and funds under management in the sort of defensive asset bucket. Would that be about right? That's right. Yeah. So we are the global, the largest uh, active fixed income manager in the world. Um, I think the only other larger firms are more ETF oriented organizations mm -hmm. that are more passive oriented. Um, but absolutely, we are, we are a very large uh, fixed income manager. Well, it's a little bit unusual to have someone like this on the podcast because typically our listeners will, will know a lot of the investment strategies we talk about and the managers we have exploit niches within the markets mm -hmm. and they're often small organizations or boutiques that are quite agile and specialized. Mm -hmm. However, I think um, what we're going to talk about here is you know, a, a strategy in the credit area, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, is actually uh, taking advantage of some of those inefficiencies in the market, but actually leveraging your global footprint, the sort of two and a half thousand employees you have around the world. That's absolutely right. Is that about right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so I think that one of the key things that we think with, as you mentioned, a, a global footprint of 2,400 employees, of which approximately three to 400 are portfolio managers, is that that reach and kind of breadth and depth of expertise that they have, I think best gets expressed for investors and kind of best achieves objectives for investors via a strategy that is a little bit more flexible, right? And that can access all of those different areas. The niche managers that you mentioned are probably absolutely great at the, the specific areas that they focus on. But we just think that for us, um, our competitive advantage really is the fact that we are a large organization that has a range of um, opportunities and kind of expertise sets that we can fully access for investors. And therefore, we can hopefully be a little bit more tactical in the way that we allocate our portfolios to basically adapt a little bit more quickly to changes in the market environment, such that if one particular area becomes unattractive, we can move out of that and move into a more attractive area, and that we can dynamically kind of adjust that exposure on behalf of our investors, such that we can achieve an objective for a fund overall or strategy overall that hopefully is a little bit more stable and smooth in its outcomes. Okay, I think it'd be helpful if we could maybe take stock here and maybe give a, a quick overview for our listeners of the type of assets you're investing in and, and the relative risk profile of those across the spectrum, please. Sure, yeah. So um, uh, the area that I particularly focus on is what we call alternative credit and private credit. Mm -hmm. So there basically we're focusing on uh, bonds and loans to either companies or real estate backed assets or kind of consumers or other types of people who basically have likely some kind of either illiquidity, right? So meaning it's a, a very illiquid investment that we're making that we can't sell and can we hold to maturity, or there's some kind of complexity to it or some kind of change to the company, right? So for example, it might be a company that 
uh, has been running for a long time, but recently lost a key customer, right? So their cash flows and revenues are down 20%. And so in that type of environment, that company is going through a short-term challenge. In those instances, it's hard for that kind of company to go to the public markets to issue debt. And so sometimes they'll come to us at PIMCO to basically issue a directly negotiated bond issue, right? And that way we can extract a slightly higher return for the fact that this is going to be an illiquid investment, uh, but the company can get certainty that they can refinance their existing debt and certainty that they can actually continue to run their business, which is what most business owners want to do. They don't really want to be dealing with financing if they don't have to. They'd much rather just get the financing done with uh, as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible and then kind of move on to actually running the business itself. So that's one example. But for us, within the alternative credit and private credit space, there is a full range of different opportunities out there. Um, and in the range will also depend upon the kind of liquidity requirements that our strategies have. Some strategies are more liquid. So like a mutual fund, for example, is daily liquidity. So therefore, it needs to focus on the most liquid assets that are out there, which generally always is going to mean publicly traded. But because there are a lot of investors who are looking for those very publicly traded daily liquid assets. Naturally, the prices on those are going to be higher and returns are going to be lower. So if investors have the ability, because their portfolios are relatively diversified, that they can give up some liquidity, we absolutely think that in today's market environment, where every investor is looking for higher returns and higher yield, given the central bank policy that's lowered returns everywhere, that we think that giving up liquidity today is one of the better ways to generate higher returns because you can manage that liquidity in your portfolio in a, in a, in a portfolio context. And how much liquidity do they have to give up? Sure. Typically? So um, uh, strategies will range kind of from either quarterly liquidity to semi-annual liquidity to annual liquidity, or even on the most extreme, they could be locked up for say five to seven years in, in a more kind of drawdown type structure in, in those investments. And and what sort of pricing differential do you see for that? What sort of reward is the investor getting for taking on that illiquidity? Absolutely. So the illiquidity premium that we see in kind of more alternative credit or private credit markets is typically at least one to two percent higher than what you're going to get in a similar public investment for the same type of credit risk. And so that's where, again, we think that as investors are looking for yield pickups, that one to two percent additional yield pickup, simply because of the fact that it's illiquid, is not requiring you to take more credit risk. It's purely just payment and compensation for the fact that this is an illiquid asset and therefore less competitive to buy that asset. And if we were to talk about the strategy you're pursuing in that space at the moment, mm -hmm. what's the mixture of the assets look like? Are we talking about residential mortgage-backed securities, mm -hmm. uh, which are on homes or properties or real estate, or asset-backed finance? Um, well, what's that mix look yeah, like? Yeah, so in the opportunistic strategy that, 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 that we're talking about today, um, really the, the asset mix between public and private uh, right now looks about two-thirds in publicly traded assets. But the publicly traded assets are, relatively speaking, less liquid. So these are assets that are likely to be kind of weekly, monthly, or quarterly liquidity assets, meaning it will take us potentially three or four months to actually sell them. Uh, so those are kind of the public assets that we buy. And then on the private side, which is about a third of the fund today, those really are um, origination on a hold to maturity basis. So usually the maturities for those assets will be one to three years, which fits within kind of the liquidity parameters for the strategy that we're talking about. 
And the running yield on those type of illiquid assets today would be approximately? Yeah, so the, the, fund, the, the strategy overall basically targets a 7 to 9% yield, or currently or historically has generated a 7 to 9% yield. On many of those more private assets that we talked about, we can likely generate a yield that's probably in the low teens, so call it 10 to 15% type yields, but at an overall portfolio level, basically, you're, you're looking at call it 7 to 9% type yields. And what sort of volatility uh, does that type of strategy t typically yield? Sure. Uh, so that strategy overall targets a 10 to 12% net return with a 5 to 7% annualized volatility target. So roughly on a return per unit of risk, we're looking at kind of 1.5 to 2. Now, your listeners probably know that kind of return per unit of risk is something that is something that investors should be focused on. And usually anything above one is already actually pretty attractive. Because if you look at, say, public equity markets, typically they're generating returns in kind of the 8 to 12% range, but the volatility is actually quite high. They're probably looking at 12 to 15% type volatility, so that your return per unit of risk is probably closer to like 0.5 to 0.8 times. Um, so at a 1.5 to 2 times, that's actually quite, quite um, attractive at that level. Now, there's been a lot of conversation that as interest rate outlook has come down, uh, spreads have really narrowed in. Uh, why, why shouldn't investors be alarmed by that and the potential to, of that unwinding? Uh, investors absolutely should be concerned about that. And I think that um, the, the last you know, 10 years, basically, since the financial crisis has largely been a risk-on environment, meaning that uh, asset prices across the board have rallied meaningfully um, during that time frame. Uh, we at PIMCO, I think that are more concerned about certain parts of the credit markets um, in terms of that spread tightening that you talked about. In particular, I think we are mostly concerned about the corporate credit markets just because the, the amount of inflows that you've seen and capital just going into that cap that corporate credit market has exploded. For so you're example, talking about companies raising money, the ability of Tesla to issue bonds and correct. other technology companies That's right. that are cash flow negative and quite speculative that have been able to you know, harness capital at very low rates. That's right. Yeah. So if you look, for instance, the high yield corporate bond market, which before the GFC was a $1.2 trillion market. Today is a $2.4 trillion market. So you've seen a doubling of that market over the last 10 years. You've also seen a significant increase in, say, triple B investment grade corporate bond, um, uh, uh, that sector of 3x over the last 10 years. And a lot of this is really driven by, yes, low interest rates, because that means that the interest expense for the company is lower. And so their ability to support paying that interest expense is low. But the concern for us is more so that the overall leverage, or as calculated by looking at the overall debt that they have relative to the cash flows that they generate, is now well above what it was prior to the GFC. And so that just indicates to us aggressive behavior by lenders, simply because they have so much money. Right? If you have a lot of money burning a hole through your pocket, what are you going to do with it? You're probably going to try to deploy it and invest it because that's what your investors are paying you to do. But if you have a lot of money to deploy, naturally you as the lender are going to try to get more aggressive about putting that money to work, which then means that the borrowers have a lot more negotiating leverage to get better borrower-friendly terms as opposed to lender-friendly terms. And so as the investor who is supporting that lender, you should be concerned that the borrower in these instances is getting much better terms than you as a lender are getting. And so that's where we think that there's the biggest concern in the corporate markets. So many of our listeners 
have probably seen the movie The Big Short. Sure. And they also remember the GFC when, you know, residential mortgage-backed securities, the flavour of the month, and then being run through balance sheets and yep. sold off as things that are different or AAA rated when they're not really. Um, <clears throat> why is this not a situation similar to that where you're seeing huge amounts of money chasing, uh, you know, return? Um, why, why shouldn't people be concerned of a repeat of that type of thing? Yeah, so I think that um, at, at the core of what the issue was leading up to the GFC, particularly in, say, the residential real estate markets in the U.S., was fundamentally poor or non-existent underwriting of the borrower. And so in the example of what people were talking about, these ninja loans, which yep. are basically no, no income, income, no, no job, job, right? Yeah. Um, in those instances, clearly the underwriter of that mortgage was not doing their job. Right? And also you should point out that in the US, unlike Australia, yeah. um, if you get upside down on your, your mortgage, i.e. you've borrowed you know, a million dollars to buy a million dollar house and the value goes to 800,000, yes. you can just mail the keys back and That's walk correct. away. That's right, there's in, no in, recourse. In, in Australia, right. They're coming after you for that. Got it. Yes. Okay. So, so, so there, was, there was no failures in Australia of residential mortgage-backed securities where there was widespread failure of residential mortgage-backed securities uh, in the U.S. Absolutely correct. That, that, that I think that the laws in each country naturally are going to create different incentives for behavior. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., the behavior absolutely is um, that because I can walk away, uh, there is very little incentive to basically keep making payments on a home if I'm underwater, like you said. So uh, I think that the first kind of core fundamental issue to any credit investment and any credit market is just underwriting. And if, as in the case of the residential markets, the underwriting is poor, then naturally the then way the the where those poorly underwritten mortgages are then placed, whether it's in a securitization or it's in a different vehicle ultimately is still going to be driven by ultimately that credit risk and the bad underwriting of that credit risk. The reason why we don't think this next kind of recession is going to be potentially as bad as that last one is because you haven't yet seen as egregious of behavior on the underwriting side in these other markets. So although corporate markets we are concerned, the underwriting is not at it's not yet nearly as bad as kind of what you were seeing in the lead up to the GFC. That's number one. The second thing is that the overall um, structuring of the investments and the leverage upon leverage upon leverage that was added to these mortgages and mortgage-backed securities, you haven't seen that happen quite to the same extent as well. And so therefore, the kind of bad behaviors that really I think were the two largest drivers of the significant deleveraging that you then saw in the GFC likely are not going to happen this next time around. You said then we haven't quite got to that level on the <laughs> leveraging. How close have we got to that same sort of leveraging? So you have seen some of the instruments and the technologies that were utilized in the uh, prior, that were blamed at least for, uh, for, for, for what happened in the GFC, utilized today. But again, I still go back to this idea that ultimately it's more about the underlying credit risks and that's really the linchpin of all of this, right? And that's where, that's why the mortgage crisis was such a um, deep and kind of um, severe crisis was that the underwriting of those mortgages was so bad in many instances, not all, but in many instances, that the defaults and losses there were so much higher than what historically you would have expected. Because the historic precedent was all based on 
better borrower behavior and they didn't see the same behavior that happened in the lead up to the crisis. So therefore, the underwriting assumptions and the default assumptions that went into these investments were based upon data that was not reflective of what actually was currently happening. That's where I think that going forward in this next crisis, particularly if it is corporate driven, likely won't have that same deviation from the original, simply because corporate underwriting and corporate behavior, while it has gotten more aggressive, is not necessarily so such a large standard deviation away from historic behavior that the models themselves should likely capture most of what the expected losses and defaults are going to be. And so therefore, people are pricing that in to kind of their models today, as opposed to leading up to the GFC, you couldn't have priced that in, right? The assumption back then was that nationwide home prices could never drop altogether and that defaults and losses in the U.S. were never going to be uh, at those levels. Now, clearly those assumptions were wrong because ultimately the underlying behavior and the way that you were making mortgages was so different than what it was in the past. Nelson, given that outlook and the global footprint and all the research from a house view, what would be the strongest sort of short idea or area that you'd have at the moment? Sure. So for us right now, uh, in our alternative credit and private strategies, um, where we can use shorting positions, primarily where we're actually short is in uh, IG uh, CDX. So it's basically an index of um, investment grade corporate bonds or corporate companies. Uh, and basically the idea is that that index has tightened to an extremely tight level. Today, I think it's about probably 40 or 50 basis points or 0.4 to 0.5% um, per year in terms of the, 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 the spread. That could easily move out to double or triple that if you were to get some kind of real recessionary environment. And so that's one of the areas that we are short the most right now on the expectation that those spreads would likely widen, which then would profit the short in this instance um, to allow us to basically profit from the fact that uh, likely there will be a correction in those uh, corporate credit markets. Now, access to these ideas for many investors is problematic. Do you want to talk a little bit about the sort of minimums that are normally required in this space? Sure. So um, for our funds, given that the vast majority of our clients typically are going to be large um, either pension plans or central banks or sovereign wealth funds and things like that, typically the minimums are going to be $5 million per investment. Um, I think through uh, partners like yourselves, um, they can access it on a smaller basis uh, because as an aggregate, your organization will aggregate to at least $5 million or more. Uh, and so we will partner with certain organizations to do that. But we do want to make sure that these types of strategies are much more limited. And by regulation, we need to make sure that they are more limited in terms of the client base that can access them. They need to generally be knowledgeable investors that are have a relatively higher net worth, right? Um, with the idea basically being that these are more complex strategies. Not that they're riskier, they're just more complex. And so because we are implementing multiple different types of trading strategies within these funds, they ultimately need to be um, sold to more sophisticated investors, which is partly why the minimums are also higher as well. And looking forward, what's the outlook 
for these type of strategies. Sure. So I think that uh, for, for us, we are very um, optimistic that uh, the next few years, particularly if we do get a recession or more of a correction in the markets, that that's actually very positive for us because we are today, and this is partly PIMCO as an organization overall, but very specifically in these opportunistic credit strategies that we invest in, are taking a much more conservative defensive approach to investing right now with the goal basically being that once that recession does hit or the correction does happen, we will be able to be in a more resilient position in our existing portfolio such that we can then be more offensive on as that recession or as that crisis begins to unfold. Because inevitably, there will be, just like there was in the GFC, a big liquidity crunch where a lot of investors are being forced to, to sell out of assets because they're getting redemptions in their mutual funds or other assets. And so therefore, there needs to be a buyer on the other side that buys from that forced seller. That buyer today is very different than it was during the GFC. During the GFC, a lot of the big broker-dealer banks, my old firm, Morgan Stanley, used to have large balance sheets that they could use to basically house and own some of these assets on a short-term basis and then sell it out in weeks, if not months later, as prices recovered. Their job largely was to provide liquidity to the market. Today, those same banks and broker-dealers aren't nearly as large as they used to be from that perspective on, on being able to act as kind of liquidity providers. And so therefore the liquidity providing falls to investors like PIMCO. Uh, it falls to other kind of actively managed funds. And so therefore we don't have the responsibility to provide liquidity to the market. Our job is to make sure that our investors get the best return possible. So we are then going to pay a price that hopefully is a lot lower than what that broker dealer would have paid. So what that means is that we expect that there will be big price gap down in a lot of these assets, which then is great for us and great for our investors and our strategies. Nelson, thank you very much. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add that's been really informative? Um, Thank you for joining us and safe travels home. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.